A father and son are estranged. They've not spoken to each other for 10 years. Two old friends used to do everything together. Now they've had a falling out. They have nothing to do with one another. A couple who was once married, happily married, now cannot stand to be in the same room with one another. Neighbors are in a row over a tree that needs to be cut down. Who's going to pay for it? Who's responsible? Business associates who once labored together, supporting one another, now find their only communication that of a courtroom and between their lawyers. These are all examples of the tragedy of estrangement. Human relationships that have broken down. Where there once had been friendliness, where there once had been love, there is now a wall, a rift, a separation. It can happen among family members, among friends, among business partners. It can happen in neighborhoods, at schools. It can happen on sports teams. It can happen in musical dramas and, 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 and in the arts. That anywhere we find human relationships... There is unfortunately the tragedy of estrangement. These once great relationships now broken, now torn down, and there's a wall, a wall between two people who once had so much in common, who once had so much fondness and love for one another. Well, this morning we want to hear what God has to say about the tragedy of estrangement and how he has given to us the blessing of reconciliation. So if you would, please take a Bible and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 14. 2 Samuel chapter 14, it's page 224. In the Bibles the church provides, there's one in the rack in front of you or underneath your seat. Again, our goal is uh, to hear God's word on the issue of the estrangement of relationships. And so we want to listen to what he has to say. As you're turning, let me give you the backstory that gets us to what we're about to look at here in 2 Samuel 14. A few years before this event takes place, David, who's king of Israel, turns his back on the Lord and engages in an adulterous affair with a woman named Bathsheba and goes so far as to have her rightful husband murdered, a man named Uriah the Hittite. God, in his great mercy, is willing to forgive David and does forgive David. However, there are consequences to sin, and one of the consequences to David's sin is that I think perhaps his children watched their father do this and were emboldened themselves to engage in immoral behavior. And it's not very long after David's sin with Bathsheba and her husband Uriah the Hittite that David's son Amnon sexually assaults his daughter Tamar. It's a story that we looked at last week. Now, we noticed last week that David did nothing. He did nothing about this. Perhaps it's because he felt after his own sin that he lacked the moral authority. I mean, who is he to come and say something to Amnon after he himself has committed a sexual sin? He's wrong about that, by the way. God had forgiven him. God had left him as king of Israel. God is the source of David's moral authority. He had all the moral authority he needed. 
to come and to say something to Amnon. But he chose not to. In that void, in that absence of David doing anything, of David saying anything, of David even addressing the situation, another of David's sons, a man named Absalom, decides to take matters into his own hands. For two years, Absalom plots against his brother Amnon. And at the end of the two years, he executes the plot and has Amnon killed. We pick up our story at the end of actually chapter 13, verse 37. After Absalom kills his brother Amnon, it says, verse 37, Absalom fled and went to Talmai, son of Amihud, the king of Geshur. But King David mourned for his son every day. That is Amnon he's mourning for. He's mourning for his oldest child who was murdered. Every day he's sad for him. Verse 38, after Absalom fled and went to Geshur, he stayed there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go to Absalom, for he was consoled concerning Amnon's death. So what's happening here? Absalom kills Amnon. Again, David seems to do nothing. He doesn't find Absalom to bring him to justice. He doesn't go find Absalom to offer him forgiveness. He just simply ignores the situation. Absalom runs off to go live with his maternal grandparents. And there's just simply a rift and estrangement. And for three years, David and his son Absalom have nothing to do with one another. Now, one of the reasons is, is because David is mourning for his oldest child, Amnon, the one who's been murdered. And every day he is grieved for the fact that he's lost his oldest son. But at some point at the end of the three years, we are told that David was consoled regarding Amnon's death. And at that point, he longs to have a relationship again with this son who he is estranged from. But unfortunately, what follows is a classic case of how not to go about the process of reconciliation. And we want to learn this morning from what David did wrong so that in the areas in which we are experiencing estrangement, we might be able to do it right. And there are two fundamental mistakes that David makes as he goes about uh, wanting to overcome the estrangement he has with his son Absalom. Pick up the story in chapter 14, verse 1. Joab, who's second in command to David in the kingdom, son of Zariah, knew that the king's heart longed for Absalom. So Joab sent someone to Tekoa and had a wise woman brought from there. He said to her, pretend you are in mourning. Dress in mourning clothes and don't use any cosmetic lotions. Act like a woman who has spent many days grieving for the dead. Then go to the king and speak these words to him. And Joab put the words in her mouth. So at this point, Joab is sending this woman to David with a made-up story. And the woman goes to David to tell him this made-up story. It didn't happen to her, but it has been planned by Joab. This story has been planned. And she shares it with David. We pick up the story in verse 6. The woman is speaking. I, your servant, had two sons. They got into a fight with each other in the field and no one was there to separate them. One struck the other and killed him. Now the whole clan has risen up against your servant. They say, hand over the one who struck his brother down so that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. 
then we will get rid of the air as well. They would put out the only burning coal I have left, leaving my husband neither name nor descendant on the face of the earth. So the woman has this made-up story that Joab has made up for. She's a great actress. She's come and presents it as if she's lost one of her children. Now, it's very clear that this story is meant to parallel what's happened in David's life. David has a son, Absalom, who's killed another son, Amnon. And the question is, what about justice for Absalom? Is he going to be killed as well? And so Joab comes and has this woman tell this story, this story about supposedly she has two boys, and one of her boys kills another one of the boys, and now the whole town wants to kill the murderer, uh, and she says, well, now I'll be gone too. I'll have two sons that are gone. Now, David doesn't realize the trap that's being set for him. He thinks this really has happened to this woman. And so he offers his judgment, and his judgment is, no, you should be merciful to the son who executed the murder. Now, she keeps drawing him in. She says, Are you sure? And she gets David to absolutely commit, yes, that boy's life should be spared. And then she springs the trap. Verse 12. Then the woman said, Let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. Speak, he replied. The woman said, Why then have you devised a thing like this against the people of God? When the king says this, does he not convict himself? For the king has not brought back his banished son... Like water spilled on the ground we cannot, which cannot be recovered, so we must die. But God does not take away life. Instead, he devises ways so that a banished person may not remain estranged from him. And in these wise woman's words, we see David's first mistake that he made. And the first mistake that David made in this rift that he has with his son Absalom is that David does nothing. David does nothing. He's just sitting in Jerusalem and for three years there's no contact with his son Absalom whatsoever. Now listen, we sit here and think, but Absalom killed his son. Isn't it Absalom's job to come to David? Isn't it Absalom's job to take the initiative to come and say, hey, look, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. I mean, after all, if it wasn't for Absalom, there wouldn't have been this rift in the relationship. We think the same way today. We think, well, that, that person left our small group. Shouldn't they be the ones to come back to us? Shouldn't be they be the ones to try to reestablish the relationship? We didn't kick them out. They chose to leave our small group. Or maybe you're thinking, well, my brother stole my girlfriend. Shouldn't he be the one to come to me? It's not my job to go to him to try to patch up the relationship. He's the one who did this thing. Or maybe we think, well, that company fired me. I didn't want to leave. They're the ones that ended my job. Why is it my job to go to the boss and, and have him and try to restore the relationship with him? Shouldn't they be the one who come to me? And, and humanly speaking, yes, that's what we would say. But unfortunately, we would be wrong, and the woman brings it up. She says, but that's not how God works. 
God's not the one who waits for us to come to him. She says God seeks out ways to overcome estrangement and banish children. And of all people, David should know this. Remember after David's sin with Bathsheba, when he turned his back on God, the God who had blessed him, the God who had done all this stuff for him, the God who had been so kind for him, and David basically said, look, I don't care about you. I want to go sleep with that woman, and I want to make things happen for myself. And he says, I don't care about you, God, and it establishes a rift in the relationship. And for a while, God and David have nothing to do with each other. But who's the one that takes the initiative to heal the rift? It's God. God is the one who sends the prophet Nathan to David. God is the one who says, look, you are estranged from me. David sinned against God. He says in his own words, against you, Lord, have I done this evil in your sight. But God doesn't wait for David to come back to him. God seeks out David and tries to come and get him. After all, this is how we became Christians, isn't it? We became Christians not because we sought God, but because God sought us. A week ago this past Friday, so nine days ago, I was sitting with a couple at a coffee house whom God had been seeking to establish a relationship with, to bring them to faith. It was amazing to hear their story. God had set everything in motion to bring this couple into a saving relationship with himself. First of all, he had given them a daughter who had been earnestly praying for them every day. Second, he had placed a couple from Calvary Church as their next-door neighbor, who unbeknownst to them had also been praying daily for them to come to faith. God had then allowed uh, the husband to have a serious medical condition for which there wasn't a lot. Uh, the doctors were... Uh, they needed some help, and so the daughter was able to say, hey, Dad, why don't you come to Calvary and allow, allow us to pray over you, allow the pastors to pray over you at the church? And so the dad came along with the mom, and in the middle of the prayer meeting, Jesus showed up in a very powerful way. The wife even had a vision of Jesus coming to her. Now, she didn't have a vision of her going up to heaven, to find him, Jesus was coming down from heaven through the Spirit to find her. And in the vision, he's reaching out his hands to her, offering her reconciliation to bring her back to himself. That's what God does. God seeks us out. None of us are here and believers in Jesus because we went and found him. It's because God took the initiative to come find us. Now look what God says to us. Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5. Therefore, speaking to you and I, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift. He's talking about if you're in the middle of prayer and you realize that somebody has something against you, stop praying. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother then come and offer the gift. Now compare that with what Jesus says in Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, 
You have won your brother over. Now look at these two passages side by side, both from the book of Matthew, both from the lips of Jesus. In the first case, if your brother has something against you, go. In the second case, if you have something against your brother, go. It doesn't matter whether you have been sinned against or you are the person doing the sinning. Who's responsible for taking the first step? We are. If you are hearing the words of Jesus this morning, he's saying to you, it's your job. Whether you were the one who was offended or you were the one who did the offending, it doesn't matter. In either case, it's our job to take the initiative. It was not Absalom's job to come to David. It was David's job to go to Absalom. That's what God did for David and that's what God requires of David to do for his son. It's also what God is asking us to do. You say, well, how many times am I supposed to? I've tried that. I've tried to reestablish the relationship. I've tried to fix things. How many times am I supposed to do that? Seven times? 77 times? Or more? Whatever it takes. And you say, but am I supposed to keep pursuing somebody who doesn't want to have a relationship with me? Am I supposed to keep making offers to them even though they keep rejecting those offers? Well, does God keep making offers to us even though we keep turning away from him? You say, but when is enough enough? Well, that is a good question. My answer to that question is, how about one more time? How about you try one more time? Maybe God brought you here this morning. And he's saying, yes, I know you've tried for the past 10 years to reestablish contact with your son. I know that you've tried for the last 10 years to fix this relationship. I know you've done good effort and thank you for doing that. But maybe God brought you here this morning to say, they're now ready. It's time for you to try one more time. Go home from here today and ask the Lord. Lord, were you talking to me this morning? Were you asking me to try one more time? Kind of like when Jesus goes and the disciples are fishing in the boat and he says, put your nets down on the other side. They're like, we we fished all night. He's like, well, try this time. Sometimes when you go and you do it in direct obedience to a command you heard from the Lord while you were sitting in his assembly and he spoke to your heart, he may do something miraculous. I don't know. But perhaps God has brought you here this morning and prepared this sermon so that his word would accomplish what he wants to accomplish. And if you go home from this place and you ask the Lord, Lord, were you talking to me? Were you telling me in this situation with my friend, with this former small group member, with this former business, were you talking to me? Do you want me to do something to take the initiative? There's a second mistake that David makes. Besides refusing or failing to take the initiative, the second mistake comes in the second half of the chapter. Joab does go and find Absalom and Gesher and brings him back to Jerusalem. And we pick up the story in verse 23. Then Joab went to Geshur and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. But the king said he must go to his own house. He must not see my face. So Absalom went to his own house and did not see the face of the king. Now the story goes on and and basically for two years Absalom's living in Jerusalem with David but they have no interaction with one another. At first this is fine for Absalom. I mean after all he really does deserve death. He was in exile, now he's at least back in Jerusalem, and so he's okay with it at the beginning. However, at some point, this becomes intolerable for him. 
So he tries to get a hold of Joab to say, hey, look, you're the kind of the intermediary here. Can you go to David and ask him, look, I want to have a real relationship with my father. Joab, knowing David wants nothing to do with Absalom, refuses to go to Absalom himself. So Absalom's like, how do I get this guy's attention? Well, it turns out that Joab and Absalom are neighbors in Jerusalem. So Absalom decides to light Joab's fields on fire. (laughs) Joab then comes over and is like, what are you doing? And Absalom's like, well, I've been trying to get your attention. Now you're here. So pick up the story. (laughs) It's true, verse 31. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. (laughs) Then Joab did go to Absalom's house and he said to him, why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom said to Joab, look, I sent word to you and said, come here so I can send you the king to ask, why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me if I were still there. Now then, I want to see the king's face. If I'm guilty of anything, let him put me to death. So Joab went to the king and told him this. Then the king summoned Absalom and he came in and bowed down with his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. Now, finally, at the end of this chapter, we have something that looks like real reconciliation. There's an embrace and a kiss, and it looks like real, genuine reconciliation. But that doesn't happen before David makes his second mistake. And the second mistake is that David offers half-hearted reconciliation. He offers half-hearted reconciliation. Yes, Absalom, you can come back out of exile, but you and I are going to have nothing to do with each other. That's half-hearted reconciliation. And for two years, Absalom lives in Jerusalem but has nothing to do with David because David won't allow it. Now listen, we do the same thing today. Imagine a situation where a husband's been unfaithful to his wife. The wife decides that she's going to take him back in. But in her heart, she's saying, he'll never share my bed with me again and I will never trust him. That's an example of half-hearted reconciliation. It's good to invite him back in. But it's not enough simply to have him living in the house. Yes, he might be grateful for a while. Because he would realize that his sin merited him being kicked out forever and the fact that you're willing to allow him just merely to be there, that'll be good, but only for a while. Because we all crave real relationship. That as long as that estrangement is there, it's going to continue to cause problems. And at some point, he's going to develop bitterness because of that lack of true, full reconciliation. Now listen, I understand there's got to be safeguards. I understand that there's got to be a process. I get that completely. But it would have been better for the wife to say in her heart or out loud, look, it's going to take me a while to learn to trust you again, but I'm willing to work at it. That's the offer of full reconciliation, of true reconciliation. Imagine that your neighbor's daughter hurts your daughter at school picks on her. You decide, look, we got to do something about this. And so you're going over to talk to your neighbor. You're going to sit down and you're going to, you're going to try to work this out. But in your heart, you're saying, no matter how the neighbor responds, my daughter will never play with her daughter again. That's half-hearted reconciliation. Again, I understand there's got to be safeguards. I understand there's got to be a period in which that relationship is reestablished. 
but to go in saying, this piece is off the table, it will never be allowed to be back in, all it does is create bitterness. Or imagine you hear the sermon and you say, you know what, this lawsuit I've got with this former business associate, I'm just gonna drop it for the sake of reconciliation. That's great, praise the Lord. But if you're thinking in your heart, but I'll never have anything to do with them again, I'll never speak to them again. That's half-hearted reconciliation. That's not how God does it with us. Compare what David did with his son with how God presents real reconciliation in the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. This is the story where the son offends his dad and he asks for his inheritance and then runs off and squanders it and basically introduces a rift in his relationship with his father. When the son comes home, it says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Does that look different than what David did with Absalom? Can you not just see the difference? David says, okay, yes, he can come back from exile, but he's not allowed to see me. But look at this father. As soon as the son comes home, he runs to him and he embraces him and he, he blesses him and he says, you're my son. He reestablishes a full relationship with him. Now look, I'm guessing that this father probably didn't give the other half of the inheritance to him. I understand that there are some level of consequences because of choices. I get that. But what he offers to him is real, full relationship. Not what David offers to Absalom. Absalom gets there. I'm sorry, David gets there, but it takes two years. Now, for those of you who are looking ahead or perhaps discerning or may know this story, you've already glanced to 2 Samuel 15, and you've seen the title, Absalom's Conspiracy. And you're thinking to yourself, aha, Absalom's a bad seed. David should have, he should have left him in exile. Life would have been better if he hadn't invited him back in. Absalom's just rebellious at heart. After all, he's lighting people's fields on fire. He's murdering people. This is not a good kid. But the question that we have to ask ourselves is, is for five years, Absalom has been estranged from his father. To what extent was David's unwillingness to offer him true, biblical, godly reconciliation, to what extent did that play a role in Absalom's rebellion? We'll never know the answer to that. It's, you can't answer hypothetical questions. But I do sense, given the way these two chapters are laid out, that while Absalom does have his struggles and may very well have done all these things without any provocation, David's certainly not blameless in the situation. And that what God is saying to you and I this morning is look, there is a way to go about overcoming estrangement. Wisdom of the world would tell you, wait for that person to come to you. You're the one who's been hurt. 
They're the one who needs it. Wait for them to come to you. The world would also tell us, hey, don't give your heart back out again. It's just going to get broken. Be guarded. Don't let them back in. God's called us here this morning to say, but I do it differently than that. True estrangement is overcome by real reconciliation. And real reconciliation is you and I taking the initiative, even for the 78th time, to try to reestablish that relationship. And when we do so, to go there offering full and complete reconciliation. The willingness that when the time is appropriate to embrace and to engage in offering our whole selves once again to that person. And so the question for each of us this morning that I'd like you to think about here and go home and continue to think about, is there a relationship that you have today in which there is estrangement? Is there a former small group member that you try to go to a different service than they go to at Calvary so you don't have to run into them anymore? Is there a former business associate that you're purposely trying to avoid? Is there a person in your family who is trying to avoid you? Is there a former teammate or classmate of yours that you used to be close with? That who knows why, but there's been some level of distance between you. Perhaps you've done something. Perhaps they've done something to you. Perhaps you thought it's better just to kind of let it go, but Instead, all it's created is this division between the two of you. Is there a former spouse that you need to make amends with? God is urging each one of us today. It's our responsibility to take the initiative just like he took the initiative with us. And it's our responsibility not to offer half-hearted reconciliation, but real, full, true embrace of the other person. And I simply ask that you and I would allow God to speak to our hearts in this matter so that God's power and grace and the beauty of God's reconciliation might overcome the estrangement that is all too common in our world. Before we close the service, I want to go back to the most important verse uh, that we read this morning. It's 2 Samuel 14, verse 14. But God does not take away life. Instead, he devises ways so that a banished person may not remain estranged from him. We've been mostly talking about reconciliation that happens between humans. But our ability to reconcile with one another comes first from our relationship with God. And that what this passage is saying is that God's first choice is not to punish sin. That that's not his goal. His goal is not to take away life. He will. Sin merits death. But that's not God's first choice. His first choice is reconciliation. And that he works with incredible energy to try to bring about that reconciliation. I want to speak this morning just for a minute to any of you here who may be estranged from God. You're a Christian. But there's something in your life There's something that you've done. There's some disobedience. There's some neglect. There's some way in which you have walked away from the Lord. And right now you're experiencing that estrangement. 
What Absalom did in killing Amnon created a rift between he and David. But as opposed to David, God is taking the initiative. He's brought you here this morning. And I can tell you, not a day has gone by that God has not been working to bring you to a point of coming back to himself. And listen to me. Absalom murdered Amnon. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter if it's abortion, addiction, adultery. Those are just the A's. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you've done. If David can ultimately be reconciled to Absalom, how much more can God be reconciled to you? And if like Absalom, you've reached the point where you're like, well, I'm not living in exile anymore. I'm here at the church, but I haven't seen God's face for a long time. I haven't heard God's voice. I'm telling you, like Joab, God sent me here to you to say, please come home. Your dad wants you to come home. Your father wants you to come back. It doesn't matter what you've done. He wants to embrace you. He wants to welcome you. He wants to kill the fatted calf, put the ring on your finger, put a robe around you. He wants to celebrate his love for you. I know that what you did is bad. But listen, these are his words. They're not mine. I didn't write this. He's saying to you, I devise ways. Look, he is infinitely creative. He will do whatever it takes to bring you back to him. And so I'm here on his behalf saying, please come home. And if you're here today and you don't have a relationship at all with God, you're not yet a believer in Jesus. You need to understand that the links God has already gone to is that he sent his own son to die for you and me so that we might be reconciled to him. We don't have to be estranged from him. We don't have to live our whole life and go into eternity separated from God. He says he will devise a way, and he has. In the person of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection allow us to be welcomed home. And if you're not yet a believer in Jesus, God wants you to come into his family. And again, he's told me in his word that I'm an ambassador for him that he might make his plea through me. Don't listen to my words. Listen to what he's saying to your heart right now. He's saying, be reconciled to me. Come home, join my family. If you'd like to know more about that, if you'd like to respond to that invitation, I'll be available down front. You being here this morning is not an accident. God has arranged everything to get you to this point so that he might say to you, here's the invitation, please come. He comes from heaven. He doesn't ask us to go find him. He reaches his hands out to us. He doesn't ask us to reach out first. He's waiting. He says in the Bible, I wait all day long with hands extended to my people. All you have to do is take them.